Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And first, the good news. Our annual pledge drive has been a complete success. Uh, Just this morning, we reached our goal of raising 12 months of operating expenses, so I am now committed to uh, continuing these podcasts from the salon through February of 2015, at the very least. And uh, on the last day of this month, I'll post another podcast with a wrap-up of the fund drive and give you some more details. Also, uh, just to let you know, I can already hear some of our fellow saloners groaning here, but in case you missed it, the uh, next phase of the Occupy movement begins on the 4th of April of this year, which is less than two weeks away. It's called the Wave of Action, and I'll do a dedicated podcast on April 3rd about this three-month event. But don't worry, the Wave of Action podcast will be interspersed with podcasts from the uh, 2013 Palenque Norte lectures and some new Terrence McKenna material as well. And again, I'll have more to say about that in my next podcast. For today, we get once again to hear from my old friend, Daniel Pinchbeck. And for what it's worth, Daniel and I first met at one of the Entheobotany conferences that were held near the uh, Palenque, Mexico ruins. At the time, Daniel was uh, still writing Breaking Open the Head, and I was writing The Spirit of the Internet. Now, Daniel and I next met at uh, Center Camp at Burning Man in 2002, and it was at that burn that I changed my name from Larry to Lorenzo, for what it's worth. The following year, Daniel was a speaker at the very first Palenque Norte lectures, and uh, you can hear that talk, which is titled A Change in How We Experience Time, in podcast number four here in the salon. And now, almost 400 podcasts later, including uh, half a dozen or so with Daniel, we are about to listen to his 2013 Palenque Norte lecture, which covers quite a wide range of topics. I've uh, not been able to locate a copy of the schedule from last year, but as I recall, the talk that we're about to listen to was actually given by Daniel very late at night, but uh, I could be wrong about that. In any event, uh, I guess that it really doesn't matter right now, so let's join Pez as he introduces our speaker for today. All right, everybody, get nice and comfortable. We're going to get started here with our next talk. It's my great pleasure to introduce Daniel Pinchbeck. Of uh, all the speakers that we have here this week, Daniel's actually the only one who's been at Palenque Norte every single year since 2003. Um, So it's really wonderful to have him back. And so I'm sure many of you know Daniel. He is the author of the best-selling novel, uh, Breaking Open the Head, uh, excuse me, best-selling book, Breaking Open the Head, and uh, also 2012 Return of Quetzalcoatl. Um, he is also the editorial director at Reality Sandwich and the founder of the Evolver.net network. And he's currently working on a new project called MindShift that I'm sure he'll tell you more about. So uh, without further ado, here's Daniel. Thank you. Thank, ooh, thank you for joining me, uh, for coming tonight. Um, I think I've started a new talking tradition, which is eating something that I've never eaten before, right before I talk. Because uh, my friend Gino over there from Hong Kong has brought duck tongue in soy sauce. So I just had my first duck tongue. If anybody wants to try a duck tongue, but be forewarned, there's a lot of like weird cartilage like stuff inside of it. But he's got them over there if you want them. <laughs> They're not going like hotcakes, you know. 
Um, okay, so I, I don't know um, how many people here are familiar with my work, or have, who, who, who's, who isn't really that, who doesn't really is not familiar with my work. Okay, cool. So that gives me the, you know, it's, it's always easiest for me to talk and sort of locate myself in, in my own kind of personal history. Um, so I, I'm the author of a few books. My first book was Breaking Open the Head, that was on psychedelic shamanism. And um, I started that book. I, I was a journalist. I was writing for the New York Times Magazine and Esquire and so on. I had a kind of uh, existential crisis or a spiritual emergency as I was in my late 20s. Um, although I'd come from a cultural background where my parents were artists, my father was an abstract painter, and my, my mother was a writer, uh, I hadn't been... They, they'd rejected you know, the, the religion, the spiritual you know, practices of their, of their ancestors, and so I, I grew up, you know, in the context of scientific materialism, accepting that or, you know, believing that consciousness could only be brain-based brain and that, you know, death was kind of the cessation of any, any, anything at all. Um, and when I was in my late 20s, um, I just began to realize in New York and the media world that uh, underlying, you know, the frenzy of activity, you know, that, 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 that you found in, in the cultural and, and the media world, there was a there was a, a deep kind of uh, despair and a kind of nihilism, and I, and I and I began to realize that the the basis of that was this this scientific materialistic worldview, and and so at that point I began to, just as I went through this questioning phase, really ask myself did did I actually know for a fact that 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 there could be no other existence of any part of our soul or spirit. Um, and, and, you know, I realized that I didn't necessarily know it for a fact. And I, re I remember that my psychedelic experiences in college had been the most significant kind of uh, windows or doors into other possibilities of the psyche. Um, so, yeah. So, so um, I also was kind of lucky because part of my heritage was through the Beat Generation. Uh, my mother had been involved with the writer Jack Kerouac um, when she was very, very young. She, she wrote a memoir about, about her time with him. Uh, and through through her, I was friends with uh, Allen Ginsberg and so on, and and they had you know definitely explored mysticism, Eastern mysticism, uh, shamanism. You know, been very early uh, in exploring ayahuasca, and and um, and actually a friend of mine who was a poet who had a m more direct connection to the beat uh, lineage was the one who introduced me to ayahuasca. Um, so um, yeah, so so breaking open the head uh, ended up undergoing a series of shamanic uh, initiations and you know was lucky enough to be able to use my journalistic abilities to visit different tribal people um, and write about them so I got an assignment to go to West Africa to Gabon uh, where I went through a uh, initiation taking uh, iboga uh, how many people here know what a boga is uh, okay so uh, a boga is uh, if, if more of you wanted to I know it must be so nice to lie down but if, I, if you can sit up a little bit it would be kind of helpful for me thanks it gives, it, gives, it gives me a sense of a little more of like a vitality or something like that um, anyway um, so yeah so, so uh, iboga is the um, sort of main psychedelic of uh, Africa West Africa uh, a trip to mean that is the uh, longest lasting psychedelic that we know of the trips are about 20 to 25 hours um, the, the, this tribe called the Bwiti uh, in Gabon and Cameroon use it as their main kind of initiation tool and uh, so I was lucky enough to be able to go to, to Gabon and go through a tribal initiation uh, taking Iboga uh, you know, which I've written about extensively but uh, among the amazing things about it for me um, 
was uh, and I, I was writing about it for a magazine called Vibe, a hip hop magazine, and then they never published the article because I think they became kind of freaked out that they'd sent like this uh, white Jewish guy to go through this African ritual. I think uh, it didn't make sense in the context of their commercial hip hop culture. Anyway, but, but anyway, so so. Um, so yeah, so a number of things about that experience were extraordinary, and as I said, I've written about it a lot, but um, among them was the sense of uh, really there being a guiding spirit like in the, in, in the plant intelligence, and um, that almost as if the spirit like took me through by the hand and uh, you know, showed me uh, my whole life, you know, sort of uh, there was a long period. I mean, they, there was also different phases of, of the experience that they knew very, very clearly. Uh, one being an open-eyed phase uh, where they put you in front of a mirror and you see different visions and windows opening up on, on a mirror that, that are like portals into other worlds or potentially like future possibilities, they told me later. Uh, and then a long phase where you lie down for about 10 hours and, and they play music the whole time. And, and during that part of the trip, I went through uh, my whole life up to that point. And it was almost like... Um, holographic sense memory recapitulation of being able to go back into very like early childhood spaces and, and traumas and experiences and, and really fully having that, that, that emotional sense of what that was like. And it was really, it, it felt as if there was, I was being guided through, the, through this whole process. Um, and then it would, do, it, would, it would do things like, for instance, it, would, it showed me little films of myself. Like at that point I was a you know, journalist, I was in this media culture and I would drink a lot at cocktail parties. So I saw little films of myself drinking alcohol, getting drunk, acting poorly, you know, feeling you know, unable to work the next day and so on. And it was like these, these little repetitive loops, you know, um, which were basically just to make you disgusted with your own behavior. And um, you know, the way I, didn't, I didn't stop drinking alcohol after that. Um, yeah, I, I slow, you know, definitely cut it down. So that was that was for me was an, was you know an example of how iboga seems to work with addictive patterns and addictive behavior. Um, it seems to both have because uh, iboga, known in the West now as ibogaine, is being used as a treatment for addictions, uh, uh, especially heroin addiction. And I have a number of friends who couldn't get cured of heroin by any other method, who managed to break it through through ibogaine. But it seems to have a n- number of different ways that it um, uh, has that effect. Uh, one is something that's like neurochemical and that people who are addicts uh, who take iboga will have no uh, withdrawal symptoms from heroin and uh, no desire for heroin uh, a- after the experience. Uh, and so it has a, sort of some kind of a neurochemical reset. And, and then at the same time... Um, it has this kind of integrative quality where you're able to integrate your past experience and really see these patterns that you've been, that you've been caught in as if from outside, as if they're being shown to you uh, as like a movie or something. So I had that experience, and I think as soon as I had that experience, I knew that I wanted to write a, you know, a, a book at some point. Um, and uh, also things came up in that experience that, for me, uh, seemed to indicate that these shamans were able to access uh, kind of, kind of uh, knowledge um, that um, didn't really make sense in a, in a rational empirical sense. Like one of, one of the tribal uh, shamans at one point was able to, to, he said that he could see the spirit of my grandmother, my mother's mother, he specified, hovering over me and that he said that she had died recently and that she loved me very much and she was still kind of protecting me. And it was just fascinating because he was right. My mother's mother had died within a year and I hadn't told anybody that 
you know, and, and, and it was just the way he said it was so commonplace, you know. So that was probably my first indication or, or kind of, uh, yeah, kind of opening to the realization that that type of psychic connectivity or, 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 or sensitivity or, or awareness was something common in, in shamanic cultures and, and had a validity. So breaking open the head, I ended up having a number of experiences along those lines. I also wrote about Burning Man in there. Uh, but I went down to Ecuador. I worked with a tribe called the Sequoia, uh, who live in the Amazon in Ecuador. And, um, yeah, I had really magnificent experiences with them and actually continue to work with them. Now, now we do retreats uh, through Evolver where we bring people to Costa Rica. We bring their elders up from Ecuador uh, because they're um, – we don't do it in Ecuador because the oil companies have pretty much uh, despoiled a lot of their land. So it's a more pristine environment in Costa Rica to do, to do ceremony. Uh, I also visited the Mazatec Indians in Mexico and uh, went through traditional mushroom ceremony. And that was where, in Huatla de Jimenez, where Gordon Wasson had rediscovered the magic mushrooms uh, back in the 1950s. Um, this is so exciting as people gather slowly. <laughs> it's nice. Uh, anyway, so, um, so yeah, so Breaking Open the Head ended up charting uh, my shift in worldview uh, from starting out as a kind of uh, skeptic, secular materialist, to re realizing that there were these other psychic dimensions to reality, which I, I assume most people here probably... Like, we can do it as a show of hands. How many people here are, are still scientific materialists and locked into that old paradigm? Okay, cool. Uh, one guy. <laughs> Gino, can you hit him? <laughs> two guys, two guys. Hit them both. <laughs> anyway, all right, we'll talk later. <laughs> um, so anyway, so, so um, as, I, as I shifted paradigm... You know, I began to realize that uh, well, I was reading, obviously, a lot of Terence McKenna, and I got introduced to the work of Jose Arguelles, and um, I began to think more about indigenous knowledge, and if it was true, if, if, if these shamanic people could have uh, foreknowings, uh, you know, kind of understandings, if they had, you know, uh, the capacity to access these other dimensions of the psyche that our modern Western society had forfeited and lost... Uh, then we had to take their knowledge systems much more seriously than, than, than we did. And in a sense, it seemed as if our modern Western culture was kind of uh, oper operating with only like half a cylinder, you know, like half a deck. Like we'd totally prioritized one way of, of thinking and being, kind of uh, rational, dualistic, um, technical knowledge. And we had totally divorced ourselves from these other kind of uh, intuitive, let's say, irrational rather than irrational uh, way, ways of uh, connecting uh, with spirit and with the universe. So that sort of led me into my second book, which was 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, which came out in 2006. And um, for that book, it was about a four-year effort to really think about the prophetic knowledge of cultures like the classical Maya in particular, the Hopi Indians, and then even how this kind of archetype of uh, kind of... Uh, uh, transformation, one, one world shifting into another world, uh, you know, the New Jerusalem, you know, the, the Kali Yuga to the Satya Yuga, you know, how you found all of these archetypes in different, different uh, cultures, uh, myth, esoteric traditions and so on around the world. And I particularly was fascinated by the Maya because, and here we are in Palenque Norte, uh, which is aptly named for this talk, I guess, uh, because it seemed like they're, 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 they, they had reached the most sophisticated level of taking a kind of shamanic uh, understanding of the, of the world and creating like a sophisticated civilization out of it. And certainly, how many people here have gone to Palenque? 
Wow, very, very few. Well, if you get the opportunity, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and what's really so amazing about it is, um, especially if you go and you make friends with the local Mayan kids and buy mushrooms from them and take them in the pyramids, uh, you, you have a tremendous sense of a, uh, a deep, you know, that, that something extremely profound was going on in, in that culture. And, 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 and um, it doesn't really seem like something antiquated at all. It seems something futuristic, maybe something that aspects of the Burning Man culture, you know, is, is still pointing towards in a way. Um, in terms of whatever they were doing with their esoteric or spiritual technologies to connect with other dimensions or, or other levels of being. Uh, I, I think that Jose Arguelles actually, I mean, Terence McKenna, how many people here read or listen to Terence McKenna? All right, there we go. Um, even the materialists. <laughs> um, you know, Terence McKenna proposed, uh, you know, that 2012 as uh, this potentially the, the eschaton or the singularity. Um, and, uh, you know, both Jose Arguelles and McKenna, you know, sort of maybe um, were too quick to literalize or, or, or reify uh, a date, in a sense. Um, but um, of their work, I think if you go to Jose Arguelles' work in Earth Ascending, it really gives you a profound sense of uh, there being kind of like an uh, underlying mathematical structure to, to the Mayan calendar that... that um, you know, it, it's almost it's almost like a a, um, a a cosmic imprint or something. And uh, what 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 Jose found in that book was a was a mathematical relationship between the thirteen by twenty matrix of the Zulkin, which is a two sixty day count, and the sixty four hexagrams of the I Ching. Uh, and I think very very elegantly and, and beautifully uh, showed that there was some some intrinsic understanding that, that they had reached. And even though in some ways they didn't have all sorts of knowledge that we possess. For instance, it's, it seems that they didn't know that the world was, you know, that the, the, you know that the, we were spinning around the sun, you know. The, the, but but somehow they were they were based on this observation of the of their local cosmos and their accessing of these shamanic dimensions. They put together this this knowledge system that's um, fascinating, you know. And and so what I what I ended up proposing in 2012 was that um, you know the end of this. Mind calendar cycle, the long count, the 5,125-year count, uh, was kind of the hinge point uh, in, a, in a transformation. Uh, and um, I did a lot of work looking at um, Western philosophers, Western thinkers, and integrating uh, their way of, of uh, kind of articulating and expressing uh, possibilities or, or what was happening to us uh, with, with these indigenous uh, knowledge systems looking at people like uh, Heidegger and, and Nietzsche and, and Carl Jung and Jean Gebser, an Austrian philosopher who wrote about kind of uh, the nature of time and the relationship between uh, consciousness and time and how kind of uh, there have been different evolutionary or kind of mutations in human consciousness that have been uh, different ways of relating to time and space. Um, just to jump into, that, jump into that a little bit, uh, do you guys want to come in or are you happy on the outskirts? Because there's plenty of room inside if you want to come in. Um, you can stay there if you want. Yeah, come on in. Yeah. Um, so Ge Gebser uh, in this book, uh, the ever-present origin, talked about um, you know what he, what he saw was it was very German, and he's a German thinker that you know there were these kind of uh, structures of consciousness as he called them, uh, and he and he and he labeled four of them, uh, which was the uh, Aboriginal. Uh, well, I guess he had the the magical and the tribal, then the uh, mythological and then the uh, mental rational. 
and he felt that we had gone through these kind of mutations of consciousness into these different ways of, of perceiving or, or realizing time and space. And in each of these types of consciousness, different possibilities are, are, are inherent uh, in them. Okay? Uh, and he felt that we were on the verge of transitioning to a next state of consciousness, uh, undergoing a mutation of consciousness to what he called the uh, integral or aperspectival uh, level of consciousness. And so um, in terms of the relationship to time and space, if you think about the aboriginals, the, the word literally means of the origin. You know, so for like aboriginals in Australia or whatever, it's not as if uh, there's a history. There's not really a progress. You know, they're not looking towards any future you know, crescendo. You know, for, for their, the purpose of their culture and their ritual is to, is to maintain uh, the, you know, the world in its, in its harmonic order. Uh, and to maintain connection with the Dreamtime ancestors that they believe love, live under the land and um, <clears throat> that we're actually the dreaming of those, of those ancestors. So, um, <clears throat> so Gebser talks about how then with the tribal and, and, and you know, sort of next development, there's the beginning of an understanding of time, uh, but then that really develops further in, in what he calls the mythological structure of consciousness, which is all the cultures around you know, 2000, 3000 BC and up like the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the Greeks, the Maya, the Aztecs uh, after them, uh, who, who um, saw time as cyclical, or maybe it's more correct to say spiraling in a way, that there, that, that there are cycles that repeat and, and, and in a sense. Um, you know, so for instance, the, uh, the, the, the Hopi talk about this being the transition from the fourth world to the fifth world, uh, and the uh, Maya talked about it as the... Um, age of the fifth son to the age of the sixth son. Um, similarly, the, 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 the um, you know, Indians uh, talked about the uh, Yuga cycle, you know, and the Kali Yuga leading to the, the sort of the age of materialism culminating uh, in, in some kind of, you know, threshold event that would then bring back the Satya Yuga, the golden age. So, uh, so that was the mythological way of understanding time. And then, and then we transitioned into uh, the modern understanding of time, which is the historical time, uh, uh, which, is, which was what Gebser called the mental rational way of thinking about time. So, and, and essentially we became, you know, and you see the development into the Renaissance where we suddenly developed perspective and we kind of entered space. Like other, previously art had been very hieratic and, and flat. If you look at it, you know, whether it's medieval art or Egyptian art, suddenly we, we discovered space and matter as we were developing science and, and technology. And um, in a way, Gebser says that we became possessed by space. You know, so, so we began to see everything in terms of space, including time. You know, so, so just as we felt that we could parcel out space, uh, we felt the same thing about time. Uh, you know, so if we think about all of our metaphors, when we talk about time, we talk about wasting time, spending time, time is money. We're constantly conceiving of time as like a quantity of which there's a limited amount um, that we could you know, run out of or that we're always chasing after, you know, uh, in a sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Uh, so... Um, so, yeah, was, so, so Gebser felt that with the 20th century, with quantum physics, with uh, cubism, Dadaism, and so on, there was the beginning of a breakthrough into a new perception of time, uh, which he thought eventually would lead to a mutation of human consciousness into the integral or apex perspectival worldview, which would actually be a kind of integration of all these different ways of being in time. 
you know, so, so from that perspective, you would, you would realize that these different ways of, of knowing time or, or realizing or, or perceiving time were like different veils uh, um, that, that, that you could, you know, use as like lenses in a way. You know, so at this moment, you know, according to, you know, this perspective, you know, we're, we're simultaneously in the ever-present origin, like the aboriginal time. You know, this is the only moment that ever is. And, um, you know, at the same time, we're in these mythological cycles, you know, the end of the Kali Yuga potentially the Christian apocalypse to a certain extent. Um, apocalypse being a word that ultimately means uh, revealing or uncovering, a time when everything becomes revealed or everything becomes known. Uh, at the same time, we're also in the, um, yeah, the mental rational time, historical time, and so on. So when you recognize that all these, these forms of time are, are available to you, then, then it would be entering this integral uh, perspective. So, uh, yes, yeah, so that was one aspect of the 2012 book, was looking at different ways to um, articulate and really also kind of synthesizing and seeing how ways that, like, uh, somebody like the, the, the visionary philosopher uh, Rudolf Steiner, did anybody read his work? Uh, or uh, Carl Jung or Gebser, how really they were all, you know, speaking of the same thing, but it was hard to perceive that because the articulations were different. Um, and uh, the book also followed my own experiments and, and self-discoveries that included more work with psychedelics, uh, visiting the Santo Daime uh, religion. People know about Santo Daime? Uh, so Santo Daime is one of the ayahuasca-based religions of uh, Brazil. Uh, in, the, in the 1920s, um, as the mestizo white culture kind of moved into, penetrated deeper into the Amazon, uh, you know, some of the rubber tappers and border guards started to make friends with the local Indian tribes and began to participate in their ceremonies with ayahuasca. And what happened is that those um, mestizos who were Catholic uh, received uh, during their ceremonies um, kind of a, uh, a, a new religion, a new dispensation in a sense that was a, a melding, a, sync a syncretic melding of Christian and indigenous elements. So for the Santo Daime, you know, they, they, they sing about uh, Christ and the Virgin Mary, but the Virgin Mary is also the, the mother of the forest. So yeah, so in the, in the 2012 book, I actually described a um, direct prophetic transmission that I had when I was doing work with the Santo Daime in, in the Amazon in Brazil uh, back in, I think it was November 2003, where um, totally uh, to my shock and and. and dismay to a certain extent, a voice kind of announced itself in my head <coughs> during a ceremony as uh, the voice of Quetzalcoatl, uh, which was a Mesoamerican deity, um, the feathered serpent of, of mine in Aztec myth, spoke through me for a week uh, during a series of ceremonies, and uh, late at night I would have dreams with like phrases that I would write down and, and so on. And I put that in the, in, in the book also. Uh, it, it actually, that, that, that part of the book ended up getting it rejected by my first publisher, which was Random House, because uh, it was too much for, for my editor to, to take in. And, and what I ultimately did in the book is, is I contextualized it in looking at the history of these prophecies and, and so on and transmissions that you see with people like Aleister Crowley. You know, there's a whole, there's a whole history of them. You know, Diane Fortune, you know. Um, and saying that, hey, man, like, you know, people get these things, but often they turn out, you know, not to be true, you know, but this is what happened in, in my circumstance, you know. Uh, in that book, 2012, I also looked at different phenomena like the uh, crop circles uh, in England. Uh, how many people here have spent some time looking at crop circles, websites, and stuff like that? 
so yes, yeah, so that was another phenomenon that I was very skeptical about. Um, and uh, I wrote I wrote a piece about them for Wired magazine, and um, that gave me an opportunity to speak to people who'd been researching it for years, <coughs> to um, you know scientists who'd been doing studies on the uh, molecular changes to the plants in the formations, um, uh, which had been they published papers in peer-reviewed science journals arguing that there was no way those could be caused by people just knocking down the plants, that it had to be some type of uh, high heat or uh, electromagnetic uh, energy blast or something. Um, I also interviewed uh, people who had been studying the geometry of the formations uh, and also people who claimed to be the, the makers of the formations or to know who the artists were, the human artists behind them. Uh, but in the book, I ended up spending about you know maybe 80 pages studying that phenomenon. And, and one thing that had made it part of the book is one of the first researchers who I spoke to about it, uh, when I asked him what he thought the, the meaning was, uh, he also uh, said that you know, the, the number of the, the, the formations seemed to re, you know, relate to the Mayan calendar and seemed to indicate you know, the end of 2012 or this period as kind of like um, the hinge point of a shift, uh, dimensional shift or consciousness shift or so on. <clears throat> so um, yeah, so so um, uh, I also covered uh, you know psychic phenomena. Um, kind of tried to look at different ways we could um, begin to integrate kind of the scientific uh, worldview with uh, esoteric and mystical ways of understanding. Uh, looking at, for instance, the work of Amit Goswami, who was a physicist, wrote a book called *The Self-Aware Universe*. Where he offered a, a whole thesis around how you could use um, quantum physics as, as 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 a basis for beginning to think about how we could have bodies or or uh, subtle bodies that would would exist after death in, in some form, uh, and how even things like the chakra system and the subtle energy systems might actually be um, kind of a quantum phenomena. So um, yeah, so so that that was 2012 and. Um, <clears throat> as that book came out, um, well, I should also say that um, part of what you know has really spurred a lot of my work has been um, thinking very much about the ecological crisis, <clears throat> and I guess also kind of like um, the endemic corruption in our current kind of military, financial, industrial, media complex. Um, and, um, you know, I guess if we were to step back and, and think about whether we really are in a kind of um, point of planetary metamorphosis or transformation, you know, there's a number of things that, you know, forgetting the Maya, <coughs> forgetting, um, uh, you know, psychic phenomena that we could, that we could look at as uh, representing uh, the sense of, of an accelerating transformational process, right? And definitely one of them is the ecological crisis, which we could talk about in, in, in more depth uh, if we want. Um, you know, we're obviously in the midst of a huge uh, crisis of mass species extinction. Uh, the oceans are, you know, 30% more acidic than they were 40 years ago. Uh, climate change is accelerating unpredictably with many feedback loops in the climate system having been kind of... Um, Activated, you know. So, I mean, just flying into Reno, right? Like, uh, there was huge forest fires, you know, and we're seeing that more and more every every, every summer. <coughs> and those fires are releasing more and more carbon in the atmosphere, which contributes to the heating, which contributes to the fires, and so on. Um, and honestly, there's some 
you know, potential for um, truly uh, catastrophic uh, effects even in our lifetimes. Um, you know, for instance, um, they've discovered that, uh, you know, in previous epochs, uh, climate change has often happened uh, extremely rapidly. Uh, it could be like a, you know, eight degree shift in, in 10 years or something. And it seems to be because there's so many delicate feedback loops that then get kind of uh, activated. Okay. Um, so, uh, for instance, one of, the, one of the things that they've now discovered is that, um, you know, there's uh, <coughs> huge deposits of methane uh, beneath the Arctic and beneath the Siberian permafrost. <coughs> and the, the, the methane is a much more potent uh, heat-trapping gas than CO2. Uh, we, we release about a million tons of CO2 into the atmosphere per hour. Uh, and the methane uh, would potentially, if, it became, if the release of it became uncontrolled, uh, could turn the planet into a biological desert in about uh, 40 or 50 years. So we're, you know, we're, we're facing that. And um, you know, that, 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 that's something that um, I still feel essentially, uh, you know, hum, human, you know, humans in general and human society and the corporations and, and the governments and everybody else is, is still not able to bring into focus or stare at directly, um, um, which, which I think will happen you know, within, the ne- within the next, hopefully the next few years. <coughs> um, we're going to have to mobilize a tremendous uh, force of creativity and innovation to, to confront this change that's underway. And at the same time, we've seen the, obviously the evolution of the internet, social technologies, uh, so that we now have a, um, you know, we've constructed the, the, f- the f- fundamental structure of a global brain. You know, humanity is now meshed together as one. Ideas, uh, new ideas, new possibilities can transmit across the global brain, across the whole field of the species mind uh, instantaneously or extremely rapidly. So potentially, you know, in, 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 if we are entering a time where these crises become more, um, you know, rapid and unavoidable, you know, the, any solutions that we can find can also be implemented, you know, shared and implemented extremely rapidly. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and then we're also seeing, uh, uh, facilitated by the communications technologies, uh, you know, m- more, well, on the one hand, we have uh, corporations using it to basically, uh, you know, eliminate privacy um, in governments, you know, and so on. But um, we also see the, 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 the ability of, uh, you know, organized activists and, uh, you know, uh, opponents of political structures able to create these alternatives like the Arab Spring or the Occupy movement uh, based on the social technologies that currently exist. Um, so, yeah, so, so, I mean, this brings me to, like, the threshold of the new book that I've been working on or, you know, just the, the ideas that now compel me and fascinate me. Have people here ever looked at or heard of a book called Spontaneous Evolution? <clears throat> yeah. So that's a book. It's a, a collaboration of a cell biologist and a political philosopher. And so they kind of look at um, the, the evolution of human civilization. <clears throat> and they, and they, they see that in, in some level it could be compared to processes of biological evolution in the past. And they note that in the past there's been a uh, shift from, uh, uh, you know, immature ecosystems that are marked, marked by competition, aggression, uh, dominator-type behavior, uh, to uh, mature ecosystems that are marked by cooperation uh, and symbiosis. 
a great example of this being our own bodies, right? Like our own bodies are, you know, 100 trillion cells and vast colonies of microorganisms that were once, uh, you know, competing uh, in the environment for scarce resources. And uh, in the process of devouring each other, uh, you know, fighting each other, somehow started to figure out how to build with each other and to construct, uh, you know, more, more complex structures, you know, like uh, organs, you know, like, uh, like tissues, like skin, like bone and so on. So, so our bodies are kind of reflections of this extraordinary symbiosis that, that nature kind of uh, organically moves towards. And um, <clears throat> yeah, so, so, so um, they believe that humanity as a whole is on the cusp of um, self-realizing that we are a, a superorganism, a planetary superorganism that's in a symbiotic relationship with the ecology of the Earth uh, in its entirety. And from that realization, that reflection, we would then have the capacity to reorganize, reconstruct our social systems, our economic systems, our industrial systems, so that they meshed with uh, this new understanding. Um, So that's the idea that's been really uh, fascinating me. Thinking about if that's the case, does that make sense to people as an idea? Cool. Does anybody have any questions on stuff that we've talked about up to this point? I'm going to get to the sooner that eventually I'm going to get to a point where I'll open this to conver- you know uh, question and answer or discussion. <clears throat> so if you if you have if you're formulating questions or the things you really want to ask, because I know I cover a lot of topics, um, you know, get them ready, prepare them. You know, I guess that's been part of my uh, task or my like uh, philosophical effort has been to synthesize and integrate and bring together a lot of developments in different fields and different ways of thinking. Um, so yeah, so so um, <clears throat> another model that that they talk about in this book, spontaneous evolution, and other writers in the same vein have talked about, like uh, Barbara Marx Hubbard, who wrote a book called Conscious Evolution, where she argues that humanity is also another way of looking at it or talking about it is that we're on the cusp of going from kind of uh, uh, unconscious to conscious evolution, which means that we recognize that we're at the, we're at the forefront of evolution and we can co- become consciously... We're, 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 we're now consciously co-creative with the evolutionary process. We're, we, 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 we're, we're, the, we're the species that can d- design and determine its own evolution, right? And, and that's especially becoming the case as we learn that everything you know, on so many levels is, is, is code that we can understand or break down. For instance, I mean, I think it's entirely possible for many people that I've spoken to and stuff that I've looked into that, um, you know, we could potentially in the near future be able to uh, halt or even reverse aging. Bio- biotechnology is beginning to figure out how to... Um, you know, make there, at the end of our DNA, there's a code called telomerase, which is what tells our cells to uh, stop dividing uh, as effectively or as frequently as we get older. And there are some species on the planet that don't have those telomerase, for instance, for certain types of jellyfish. Um, they've begun to do experiments where they're able to, you know, um, kind of knock out the telomerase or, or change them. <clears throat> they've done studies with mice where... I guess original original study was they um, kind of uh, messed with the telomerase, so the mice aged rapidly. Then they then so then they introduced a change to the telomerase, and the mice actually de-aged. They went from gray-haired and uh, kind of uh, somber to uh, brown-haired and frisky again. You know, 
so I mean, this, this is the level at which we're, we're quickly moving towards you know, these types of capacities. That's only one aspect of slowing down the aging process or stopping it or even reversing it. But it, it actually does look like that's significantly pl- plausible, uh, if not inevitable, uh, you know, in, in the next, you know, who knows, 10 to 30 years. So, um, yeah, anyway, so, so this idea that we're, we're the species that now has the capacity to consciously direct or determine our own evolutionary destiny. But the problem is that we're inflicted by the subconscious programming of our past, right? We've inherited this uh, legacy of uh, violence, of these uh, distorted and destructive belief systems, these religious ideologies, these, 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 these cultural ideologies, and, 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 and they're embedded in our social financial structures and so on, our governments, and, and, and they're repressing and retarding human evolution to a tremendous degree, right? Can we all agree on that? Does that make sense? <clears throat> I mean, so for instance, what's that? How is, in, in the face of prolonged living, how is, you know, the economy of ecology uh, feasible? I mean, you spoke of this. I'm going to get there. Oh, yeah. Booyah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Yes, yes, yes. The, I was talking about the subconscious programming that's now inflicting us and leading us to our destruction unless we make a quick, you know, up, upgrade in, um, you know, what the fuck we're doing on this planet and, and why the fuck we're doing it, you know? Um, so, yeah, so, so at the moment, um, for instance, you know, media, we have this mass media that's essentially a, a weapon that's used by the hands of an elite to uh, dominate and control the mass mind, right? To keep everybody at a low frequency. And if you really want to think about, uh, I mean, what, what I'm seeking to do in the new book is take a number of, of these different areas and kind of look at them, you know, what, what, you know, where they're at now, you know, how they're holding us back and, and what would be the potential to, the way to, the, 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 the tactical and strategic method to bring about their transformation. Um, with, you know, not, you know, as, as practically and pragmatically as possible. You know, so... Um, so the, so the media is uh, you know, constricting the mass mind. And if you want to think about what media ultimately does, uh, you know, we think that it's um, you know, conveying information or entertaining. You know, but if you step back from it and really think about what the mass media does on a global scale, the, the most significant thing is it does is coordinate behavior. Okay? The, the media coordinates global behavior. You know, so through the mass media on a planetary scale, you know, we're telling people... You know what the model is of how to live. You know how, what what they should be consuming, what their relationships should be like, what their relationships to authority should be like. You know, so 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 we're imprinting this 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 way of of, of being uh, and living that that n- no longer makes sense um, with our planetary situation. Uh, one of the um, major thinkers who's had a huge uh, impact on on me is uh, Buckminster Fuller. Have have people explored his work here at all? He wrote a little book called Utopia or Oblivion, where he essentially argued back in the 60s that humanity really was faced with that as our choice, that either we could um, you know, maintain these old programs and keep running them until we destroyed the ourselves, or, or we could uh, make this upgrade, you know, begin to use resources efficiently, change our whole model of what economy and wealth mean, and, and, and prosper uh, you know, entirely. Uh, and, and he felt that the only way we could really be doing that would be the, the, the model would be to elevate and evolve uh, you know, humanity as a whole you know, which um, I think I, I, mean, I, I feel like um, 
you know, I mean, even many of the, I mean, there's so many incredibly brilliant people at Burning Man, many of them who work in, you know, major corporations or uh, investment funds and so on. But I think many of them are still operating with these subconscious programs. And one of those subconscious programs is that all of humanity can't make it, that it's survival of the fittest. You know, nature is actually not survival of the fittest, it's survival of the fit, you know. Uh, you don't you don't have to be you know the 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 the, the dominator king to, to survive. In fact, that's not that that ultimately wouldn't work in our situation. So Buckminster Fuller really thought that if we began to really use utilize our resources efficiently and effectively, uh, we we could sustain the human population as a whole, uh, you know, w- with with abundance, and um, you know continue continue our existence on this planet. Um, into the you know long term future. Um, yeah, so so I mean I, I think that's that's um, you know very powerful and helpful way to think about it. That that even you know that, that it really is hard for us to even see how how deep our subconscious programming operates, and 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 you know it's it's been inbred in us that there's winners and losers. You know that it, that it has to you know end in tragedy in a sense and all that stuff is that is what we need to deprogram ourselves from you know and i I think burning man helps us to see how um you know tremendously powerful the human imagination is you know and and how the unleashed imagination can do things that um you know are are uh beyond what we now think is even uh, conceivable you know so I, uh, once again, just to step back, I think that you know that's what we're what we're offered with the ecological crisis is this tremendous opportunity to uh, engage uh, our deepest resources of uh, creativity uh, to construct something um, incredibly beautiful for the future. And I, I think that um, yeah, I mean um, uh, one one metaphor. Oh, so so both Barbara Marx Hubbard and the authors of Spontaneous uh, Evolution. Uh, talk about the uh, as a metaphor analogy the the caterpillar to butterfly transition. Okay, so uh, you know when the caterpillar goes into the chrysalis, uh, it's not as if uh, it simply sprouts wings. It's more like the whole the whole being absorb you know you know consumes what's in the chrysalis and then you know kind of melts down into kind of a biotic soup. And just as it's on the verge of total total dissolution, there are like small imaginal cells uh, in in the caterpillar. There's like six of them, and they contain like this reprogramming code for the entire organism. So they begin to propagate themselves. And at first, those imaginal cells are seen as a virus uh, by the uh, dying caterpillar's immune system. So they're attacked. But as the imaginal cells are attacked, they actually become stronger and they figure out how to propagate themselves further until they've taken over the whole uh, mechanism and uh, the whole organism and uh, are able to reconstruct it into the form of the butterfly. So, um, you know, so, so if we take that metaphor, uh, we could think about, you know, I mean, there's individual imaginal cells, you know, people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King or even John Lennon, let's say who, uh, you know, we're, we're beginning to kind of um, offer the, 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 you know, the, the counter meme to the, to the, to the dominator, dominator parasitic culture. Um, and, and now we're seeing that happen on this level of uh, new kind of social organisms, you know. Uh, Burning Man being one example, and I would say o- the Occupy movement being a very significant uh, example also. Uh, I feel that the Occupy movement was, was, you know, has been deeply misunderstood, and, and, and once again, it's the media, you know, 
bashing people over the head with a certain you know perspective on it. Uh, I think that it was only only um, most um, kind of superficially a protest movement. Uh, the protest was kind of like the outer boundary around the the, uh, the cell, uh, and within within the boundary, uh, what it was was a process movement. And the process was really how do you uh, construct a healthy new social organism. You know, so if you went into Occupy Wall Street, for instance, it was like a it was like a mini cell and like a new social organism, and that you had like um, places for people to sleep. You know, you had uh, direct democracy, public forum. You had media. You had a library, an education area. Uh, you had a kitchen. You had gray water, sustainability. You know, so the whole thing was like a model of a, of, a, of a new social system or social organism. And, um, you know, very much like this imaginal cell model, I mean, that thing propagated around the world relatively quickly. And, and, and yes, there were a lot of chaos around it. And ultimately, I think the whole, you know, it was, it was a necessary phase in an evolutionary process that, that it emerged in that way with that kind of oppositional mentality. And, and that oppositional mentality invited, you know, kind of um, crackdown. You know, so so it was smushed in that original form, uh, but 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 those that 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 program is going to re-access, you know, reappear in a new form that probably won't be oppositional. That'll be more uh, symbiotic in the next phase of its uh, evolutionary growth. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So so um, yeah. So those are some of the ways that I've been um, thinking about this process. Now, you know, because I also take seriously things like extraterrestrials, which we can talk about, um, <clears throat> or let's say galactic uh, civilizations, galactic levels of intelligence, um, and psychic phenomena, uh, my perspective also goes into other areas and dimensions. Um, so, for instance, um, I, I, the way that I see, in a sense, what's happening... Um, <clears throat> Is you could look at the ecological. So if you look at the whole history of human societies up till today, uh, every other civilized, you know, society that we knew about, culture that we knew about, had uh, initiatory practices. Um, now initiation, you know, was especially meant for young men, uh, you know, for women also. But it was, in every culture around the world, it was thought that men particularly needed to be uh, initiated in some way. Um, Joseph Chilton Pierce uh, wrote a book called um, "The Biology of Transcendence." Uh, and he wrote about how uh, the neocortex uh, is what makes us, you know, particularly human. It's the most recent part of the brain to develop. It's what allows for abstract sy symbol processing, for long-range planning, and so on. Um, but, but you know, although it obviously develops, you know, when we're when we're children and is part of the the maturing brain, uh, he 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 argues that initiation actually has a, a biological or neurological function in that uh, to actually reach kind of uh, adult maturity uh, in terms of your consciousness, uh, your awareness, you actually need to go through some type of initiatory process uh, to, to, to enter into kind of, um, uh, to go through a kind of ordeal that forces you to access uh, visionary states or uh, break through to a transpersonal or transegoic uh, connection to the universe. 
You know, so so if you look at our culture where we've um, you know where we've done away with initiation ritual, and, and initiation has a number of different aspects or phases to it that we can discuss. But then you have young people. You know, you know when you're 15. I know that I felt this. I'm sure many most people here did too. You feel like you know something is just missing. Like you you are meant to have some experience, or you know when you're 17, and and you're just it, you're, you're, this culture doesn't provide it. So instead, you get cynical, you get nasty. You know, you look for any kind of substitute. You know, how many people feel that that's common to their experience, or you know? Um, so, anyways, yeah. So. Um, so since modern society, uh, for various reasons, did away with initiation, uh, it, it created a strong subconscious or unconscious urge for some type of initiation. Uh, and, and the way to do that could be something destructive like a war you know, or an ecological catastrophe. You know, so in a, in a way, our incapacity to deal with the ecological crisis up to this point c- could, could just reflect our, our subconscious impulse to bring about a crisis that forces us through a, an initiation process to reach another level or threshold of consciousness. Okay? Now, from my personal experience and from my work with indigenous cultures, I, I, I am completely personally convinced that they did possess psychic capacities and um, ways of working together uh, to, to even affect... Um, the physical world in different respects. <clears throat> in particular, in my 2012 book, I talked about the Hopi Indians in Arizona uh, as an example of a culture, you know, who... Um, and, and some of these indigenous cultures may have chosen to live on the edge of uh, what was uh, sustainable uh, for, for them in order to be forced to uh, access initiatory states of consciousness and, and to, 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 to be able to hone, in, hone their psychic capacities. Uh, you know, so much of the Hopi culture, their, their spiritual culture, is about bringing rain. Because without a certain amount of rain there, they can't grow their crops and they can't survive. Uh, you know, in, in my book, I talked about the works of an anthropologist who spent many years with the Hopi, and ultimately he had to admit that their rain dances, um, not always, uh, but more than he could explain according to any major, you know, kind of way of understanding that he had coming from Cambridge. Uh, as an empiricist, uh, that they were somehow able to affect the weather through, the, through these rituals. He said that sometimes they would dance and um, there would be a blazing hot sun. In 20 minutes, clouds would gather and rain would fall. This didn't happen all the time, but it happened often enough that uh, he became convinced they, they had some, some type of capacity that he, he couldn't understand. Now, so, and I, I mean, I, this is even statistically demonstrated in terms of like, um, they've done studies on. Uh, graduation days and incidents of rainfall, and apparently the, the incidence of rainfall becomes less likely significantly on, gra- on graduation days. So it's that collective energy is is, is, is keeping the rain at bay. Um, does that make sense to people in a way? Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, you want you have a question? Yeah. Hold on, hold on. He's going to bring you a mic. Uh, that sounds like a lot like Greg Braden. In his writing, he describes the same thing that they would go out and pray for rain, but their praying would be basically uh, assuming that it's already raining. By doing that, they would get it. Mm-hmm. So instead of asking for it, they, they envision it like it's already happening. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know about that, but in, in, the, in, the, in the case of the Hopi, I guess they take on the persona of the spirits, and then they dance as the spirits, and, and um, that's, that's, that's meant to bring in uh, 
the rain. But anyway, so, so just to think about that idea, so let's say that we actually have these capacities that are dormant within us, that our, that our culture has uh, actively suppressed. Um, is it possible that um, this ecological crisis is um, a means for us to, to, to compel us to um, access these dormant faculties of the psyche? Uh, you know, paranormal capacities, psychic abilities. And is it possible that we could eventually be doing maybe global psychic workings to, to uh, affect uh, the climate and other aspects of our world? Um, so, yeah, and, and you know, from, from my perspective also, if we look at all of our, like, one of the most popular films of all time, right? Like uh, Avatar, Star Wars, Harry Potter, uh, The Matrix. You know, they're, they're telling the same story over and over again, which is essentially that, uh, <clears throat> you know, there needs to be kind of a training, you know, a, a school or some kind of process where, you know, you can access the, the, the force or whatever name it's given, where you can learn to develop your psychic faculties. You know, so, so rather than just thinking that's like an imaginary uh, fantasy, you know, I, I kind of tend to think that that's like um, a foreshadowing. You know of, of how human culture will develop in the future, where we'll actually, you know, have institutes where we where we hone these types of faculties. You know. Um, so yeah, so 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 for me, what what I've tried to do is kind of look at it as a um, uh, a full paradigm model for what this transformation looks like, uh, what 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 it would what it would entail. Uh, that includes kind of understanding that it uh, requires kind of a new mythology uh, that embraces these dimensions of the psyche um, that, that you know, recognizes the need to shift from a competitive to a cooperative or collaborative framework and then provides the infrastructure for, for doing that. Um, and, and potentially, um, yeah, I mean, I mean at, at that point, you know, the, you know, what's interesting is we've already built, you know, the roads, the cities, and the industrial infrastructure, you know, the, and now the communications infrastructure. So all of that exists. Um, to that, that in, in, in a sense, we can imagine that being turn, turned in a different direction and used to create sustainable technologies. Um, part of what I've been doing in, in my recent thinking and working is um, studying kind of different views on the future, uh, different perspectives and different visionaries and engineers and activists. So, for instance, somebody mentioned uh, Ray Kurzweil recently and uh, the, the, the idea of the technological singularity. Um, you know, Kurzweil wrote a book called The Singularity is Near, uh, ar ar arguing that our, sort of the human destiny was to merge with uh, machines to a certain extent. Uh, another book by, uh, I mean, it's just so funny because the range of uh, thinkers who all seem quite convincing and sensible but say totally the opposite things about the future, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, dizzying in a way. Um, you know, there are people who believe that due to peak oil and climate change, you know, we're going we're gonna to collapse back into a much more rudimentary way of life. Uh, and then there's authors like um, the people who wrote uh, Abundance, uh, who believe that uh, in 30 or 40 years, technology will have evolved so fast that it will be able to solve all of our problems on the planet. Um, and I, I totally think that technology is crucial to our evolution. I mean, I'm in no way a Luddite. Uh, however, um, I think as we were to shift into kind of um, this other state, of kind of recognizing um, that we're a planetary superorganism in a symbiotic relationship with our ecology, um, we, would, we would also begin to 
want to want to refocus our development of technology. Um, and there's so many aspects of it that we can discuss. You know, whether it's genetically modified food or um, kind of uh, geoengineering plans to reverse climate change. They're all kind of treating um, kind of uh, these these massive problems that human engineering and kind of um, industry have un- have unleashed. Uh, as things that can be solved with the same type of mentality, uh, which is kind of single point solutions uh, that are not holistic or integrated, you know. Uh, so, from my perspective, the the type of uh, kind of uh, technological approach or technical approach that somebody like Buckminster Fuller advocates makes makes a lot more sense. Um, um, you know that that. You know, there's a book called Biomimicry that essentially, instead of creating technologies that um, are seeking to dominate or control natural systems as we've done un- until now, we should be learning from natural systems and applying those lessons in, in our technologies. Um, what's that? Yeah, yeah. And there's a, a really one one very important thinker in this regard is uh, William McDonoghue, who wrote a book called Cradle to Cradle. Uh, who basically argues that uh, we could theoretically, you know, I mean, first of all, we think about in the past, like, um, you know, we, we, there was no way we could fly a plane until we did, right? You know, so we were always able to violate what we think is possible. Uh, but he argues that um, we could potentially redesign our uh, industries so that all of the industrial products feed back seamlessly uh, into the natural world. And non-destructively, and could even be, uh, you know, positive and productive. You know, so for instance, he gives an example of having, you know, you know, wrappers and containers, not only biodegradable, but having kind of uh, seeds and fungi embedded in them, uh, so that you know, when you bought a product, you can just bury the the bag or whatever, and uh, you know, a flower garden would spring up, or a vegetable garden, or something like that. And that, and some and, and some companies have have now begun to do that actually. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, you know. So uh, we look at nature obviously as a model. Nature is a perfect. In a sense, you could look at nature as a perfected technology. You know, it doesn't create any waste. Everything that it creates is 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 used. Um, you know, kind of sublimely. You know, there's no waste. It's only food. And and in a way, like you could see that the next step in human con- in in human existence or or whatever would be to kind of reintegrate with nature. You know, but at a higher order of, of, of techno- technological and um, you know development and conscious self-reflection. Um, so um, yeah, so that that's an idea I, I, I find to be really palatable. And um, you know, once again, I think it's a question of you know our, our focus shifting in this direction, and then we'll see things that are unimaginable becoming imaginable imaginable but that's only going to happen i think within a new paradigm or a new kind of um way of thinking of what the future looks like uh and you know the, in a sense i think that human human beings always need to be oriented towards some type of uh, transcendence uh something that takes us beyond where we've been uh and at, at you know from where we are now i would say that 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 that, that next stage of transcendent would be potentially space migration, um, you know, settling other worlds, terraforming them, and so on. I mean, why not? You know, that was in the 60s and the 70s. That was um, something that we really 
expected to be doing. That was something that Leary talked about a lot. And somehow with the kind of disappointments in the space program, that, that idea got, got kind of uh, set back. You know, but why, why, why not uh, imagine ourselves you know, reaching into other worlds? And then at the same time, um, exploring the, uh, the, the inner cosmos, the psychocosmos, you know, through uh, shamanic practices, mystical practices, uh, uh, psychedelics, and so on. So I think we could see that the, the future of human development could be in both directions at, at once. Does that make some sense? Yes. Cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, let's take some questions. That'd be awesome. Do you think uh, it's necessary for us to have a crisis to help us evolve? Um, I think, you know, something I was thinking of as you were speaking was that at least in the U.S., I think we feel like we need a crisis. I think uh, as a country, we, we feel like we came into our own at a moment of enormous crisis in, in, you know, in World War II. That's where we became this, this giant force in the world, and that's it, it, sort of that piece of the 20th century is where we derive a lot of what we think of as, as standard American culture from. And I, I think we don't know what to do with ourselves without a crisis. Um, but that's, you know, that's, a, that's my theory about one country in the world. And I was wondering if you, if you think we need to have a crisis so that we can get to this next place or if we can do it without some kind of massive destruction. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly <clears throat> don't think that there has to be massive destruction. But I think the crisis is already underway. Uh, and really the question is how we're going to adapt to it. You know, I mean, we, for instance, we saw Hurricane Sandy in New York last year. You know, I mean, who knows what's going to happen with the climate, but it seems likely we're going to start to see two or three Hurricane Sandys a year. And at that point, we're not going to be thinking about, like, how do we rebuild Far Rockaway? We're going to start thinking about how do we resettle populations, right? And then the choice is, are we going to create, you know, more shitty, you know, cities that, you know, don't have good infrastructure where food needs to be imported vast distances? <clears throat> or are we going to, you know, creatively innovate and build eco cities that are able to, you know, cons- you know feed everybody from, from within, you know? Um, I think we need the crisis because without it, we're not going to overcome the inertia of our of our current social structure. But I don't think it has to be massively destructive at all. I think that we actually could, even with reduced circumstances, completely sustain the current the current global population. Uh, you know, and, and even see it moderately increase and then taper off. You know. Anyway, I, I just like you said, you know, you were going to get into some of this more like mystical, like Rudolf Steiner stuff. So I'm curious to hear you rap about like um, more about the the worldview that you imagine on the other side of this transition and you know how that's gonna you know how how where it's gonna go deep mm-hmm. on that stuff <clears throat> yeah well I mean um, I think that you know I mean how many people here have done like shamanic work with ayahuasca in particular I mean um, I, I think that you know we've now inherited the knowledge of these indigenous cultures and the western you know the the probing and innovative western mind is now exploring beginning to explore scratch the surface of these dimensions and uh, for me it was you know my psychedelic experiences especially ayahuasca that uh, opened me very deeply to the works of Rudolf Steiner um, um, and other occult occult thinkers and, and visionaries but, but Steiner for me was most significant um 
Yeah, that, that to me suggests that these, that these shamanic dimensions, these other dimensions of the psyche, are, are a vast realm that, that, that's ahead of us for human exploration. And, and uh, you know, the fact that it's still largely mysterious is something that I find to be tremendously wonderful, you know, because um, that, that mystery is, is, is a goad, you know, to us to, 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 to probe forward and to experiment and explore and learn more. You know, so so um, for for me, Steiner provided the most um, powerful uh, mapping, you know, of of kind of these uh, other dimensional possibilities, you know, and and any any articulation in this sense is is just a map, right? It's a, it's an effort, it's a, it's an attempt. Or I mean, actually, if you read Steiner's first book, so Steiner was a uh, Austrian visionary. I think he was born around 1860. Uh, even as a child. He had the innate capacity to enter into visionary realms uh, and um, kind of read uh, what's often called the Akashic Record and so on, or at least this is what he claims. Uh, he began to realize that nobody around him possessed these faculties uh, except for one old gardener he found who became his friend. And so he began to realize that if he talked about it, uh, uh, people were just going to think he was crazy. So he waited uh, until he was, I think, in his 40s until he'd uh, gotten a doctorate in philosophy and, and done work with Goethe's science papers and published uh, his first book of philosophy, The Philosophy of Freedom, which was really a refutation of dualistic thinking, uh, uh, in a sense, <coughs> where he also noted that ultimately uh, philosophers were artists in the realm of concepts and that what they did was opened up, uh, you know, between the percept, uh, you know, and, and its articulation, you know, there, there's infinite room for, for development, you know, for extension. So Steiner said that his, uh, the mission of his particular life on Earth was to bring the knowledge of reincarnation back to the West, uh, which had been lost uh, with kind of the breaking of the, breaking of the mystery tr school traditions uh, and the rise of Christianity. Um, <clears throat> he said that, uh, you know, he wrote, he wrote a number of volumes uh, on in, in, in reincarnation, uh, and he looked at how um, even in, you know, in, the we in our Western culture, there were souls that evolved you know, through different incarnations. And he traced the number of them back uh, you know, into the past. You know. um, but Steiner said that not only did, did individual humans uh, in reincarnate again and again, but the earth itself uh, also reincarnated. Uh, and, and that we were currently in the fourth uh, incarnation of the earth uh, on, on, on the cusp of shifting to the fifth incarnation. So I found that a very numinous correspondence with the ideas of people like the Hopi and the Maya who talked about the fourth world to the fifth world or the fifth sun and the sixth sun. So um, for, for, for Steiner, these um, worlds were also kind of different levels of uh, consciousness. His uh, esoteric philosophy, which was also you know, related to uh, Blavatsky and theosophy and so on, uh, he, he, he said that as, as we're currently constructed, humans actually possess four bodies. Uh, the physical body, the astral body, the etheric body, and the eye or the ego. Um, these bodies were formed in these previous worlds and have been developing since. So kind of uh, world one for him uh, w would have been the, uh, just the, the, the rudimentary physical body developing. 
then the etheric body developed in the next world and the physical body reached a higher stage of development. Then the astral body joined the etheric body and the physical body and reached a higher stage, all of them reached a higher stage of development in the uh, current world, the fourth world, where we, for the first time humans developed the I or the ego, which was their uh, sense of uh, self-identity. Okay? So he felt that this world was the, you know, and, uh, it's, it's complex because this you know, doesn't map perfectly onto a scientific and rational technical understanding that we're so um, kind of familiar with. So, for instance, like my, my reading of Steiner is he talks about things like uh, Atlantis and Lemuria, these lost civilizations, but, it, but it's not really as if they're like literal physical structures that we're going to find on the planet, although we might find some residue of them. It's more like they're other forms of consciousness that are uh, dimensionally proximate to our own. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so Steiner felt that in, our, in our, this present world, uh, humans had for the first time developed the I or the ego and had uh, evolved that to a certain se- uh, you know, level where we had uh, self-identity, consciousness uh, and ha- we had separated out obviously in the modern world from the tribal cultures which still largely have a, have a group self-identity to now having individual identity and that, that was a major evolutionary jump for humanity um, if you look at like tribal cultures like the Australian aboriginals uh, one story I think illustrates how differently they think um, is uh, documentary filmmakers wanted to make a documentary on them and instead of just shooting it they decided to actually get them involved with the process so they showed all these other anthropological documentaries to the aboriginals and they asked them uh, you know, how would you like to be represent- represented in this film <clears throat> and the main thing that they said is they wanted the whole tribe to be in every frame they didn't want there to be any close ups on one person you know, so, so for them that, that idea of having a, you know, an individual focus or close up was something that uh, you know, seemed degenerative something they couldn't even really understand or fathom you know, so they ended up shooting the film with a wide angle lens and having the whole tribe in every shot so anyway, but, but you know, as part of our modern evolution, we had to shift from that tribal, you know, as you said, we had to separate from nature entirely. We had to separate from, from the group, from the collective, into this ego and individuality. So for Steiner, the transition to the next world involved the uh, construction of what he called the fifth body, which he, co- he described as the spirit self. So for Steiner, basically, uh, there's an astral world. When we go to sleep at night... Our, um, our ego or, and our I uh, connect with the astral body and they leave behind the etheric body which is like the energy body and the physical body uh, sleeping and the astral body and the I go off and journey into, into the astral realms and the astral realms are these realms of like dream and imagination and, and uh, spirits and so on and through those astral realms all of these desires and cravings pour into us uh, and they kind of overwhelm us, you know, which is why we end up with uh, addictions, you know, with all these destructive patterns. So for Steiner, the, 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 the fifth world that we were moving into was defined by the um, ability of the, the ego or the I to become strong enough so that it transformed the astral body and was no longer subject to those, those cravings and addictions and so on. And, and as we transform the astral body, we form the uh, spirit self. So just as the fourth, fourth world was about the um, construction of the I and the individual ego, the fifth world would be about the uh, construction of the spirit self. 
So for Steiner, like uh, in each of these um, evolutionary leaps, it's like everything evolved in consciousness. Like minerals, stones possess a certain level of consciousness. Uh, plants possess another one. Uh, animals, another one. So he said that, for instance, that um, plants were currently at a... Um, gosh, I can't remember exactly. Kind of like a dreamless, a deep sleep consciousness. And in the next incarnation of the Earth, they were going to move into like a dream sleep consciousness. Uh, everything kind of takes an upshift uh, through, through this, at, at this process. So I mean, it's a, I think it's a very beautiful and poetic way of uh, one, one map or articulation of how we could understand what's happening. Uh, another way would be to say, you know, to look at moral returns McKenna talked about or William Blake talked about, which is really that, um, you know, potentially, you know, the imagination, as Blake said, is not just uh, a state. It's the human existence in itself, you know. So as we're evolving our technical capacities, our real, you know, kind of able ability to parse and, and you know, change and impact code at all these different levels, uh, the imagination becomes like an emergent property that could uh, become more and more powerful, you know, which I think once again we get a sense of at Burning Man of what that, what that begins to look like or, or feel like in the future. Was that helpful? <laughs> thing and the rational thought. Um, that's what I think has gotten. It's so helpful falling. if you can wind up in a question. <laughs> Do you think that there's a way that we can just? I mean, is it is education the answer? And is it yeah. Like, I mean, I, so I mean, I think that um, um, you know. Potentially, we have the capacity now, you know, with the internet, um, and the internet once again, I think, is you know, obviously something that's a kind of um, fundamental aspect of this evolutionary process. And once again, you know, in terms of crisis, I mean, it's very interesting that the the internet, you know, the development of it in, in its current form was a response to the threat of nuclear war uh, disrupting communications. So they needed to construct a system that was fully distributed uh, and kind of holographic in the way, the way that information was distributed. And, and by doing this, they almost inadvertently uh, tapped into kind of a um, uh, successful evolutionary paradigm. Uh, Paul Stamets talks about how uh, mycelium, you know, store information holographically. You know, so if you have a vast, uh, you know, mycelial network underground, if at one end the uh, mycelia encounter like a pathogen or a toxin and they figure out how to convert it into a food, then that information is shared across the whole network. There could be, you know, many, many miles, you know. Um, and similarly, our brains also store information holographically. Like if you lose a chunk of your brain, you don't lose, you know, a, a set of your memories. The memories are all stored uh, throughout the whole system. You know, so, so this appears to be something that we've beamed into and you know, what it potentially, as I mentioned before, could potentially allow for is uh, very fast um, kind of best practices uh, you know, being, being transmitted you know, during, during a, a type of crisis. You know? um, yeah, so, so I think that, that you know, the Internet allows us to um, you know, overcome, you know, maybe supersede the current, corporate the current corporate structures in a way. You know, we don't quite see how that could happen quite yet. Um, I mean, Bitcoin, I think, is a very fascinating example. People tracking Bitcoin or have looked into it at all? Um, so, yeah, so a, a math mathematical engineering genius figured out that um, 
you could create a uh, you know virtual currency based on uh, mathematical equations that are extremely difficult to solve uh, that have a limited number of, of, of uh, options you know like there's 23 million of them you know and and um, you know, he launched it. It was uh, very cheap. It blew up. Suddenly, it was two hundred thirty dollars to Bitcoin. Then it went back to like eighty or a hundred dollars per Bitcoin now. But um, what Bitcoin is revealing uh, is, in a sense, the same thing that Napster uh, did for the music industry. It's possible for the financial industry that you could have a uh, type of currency that uh, requires no banking system as an intermediary. Because Bitcoin can be stored by uh, you know individuals and and uh, yeah just doesn't 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 require that that type that type of structure, you know. So that's an example of how you know we can see the the, the you know our, our capacities through networks and information technologies to leapfrog over the uh, inertia of the corporate structures. You know, similarly, we can imagine you know using the global communications infrastructure to do you know retraining for the human population on the planetary scale so that you know we could suddenly be teaching permaculture you know practices uh, you know homeopathy you know acupuncture you know Chinese medicine principles I mean th- those could become you know c- collective property of, of humanity in a, in a very short time frame you know um, so yeah I, mean, I think that you know the, the, we've, we've constructed I mean once again it's like this organic process we built the the roads, we built the cities, we built the industry, we built the communications infrastructure. It's all there, but it's still caught in the uh, kind of inertia of the old social systems and ideologies that are not allowing us to just perceive what what this thing is tending towards, which would be us, the, the emergence of humanity as a planetary superorganism, you know, able to take care of its own uh, uh, environment, you know, properly, you know. Uh, talking about the planetary superorganism, I was wondering what your thoughts were on, um, say, Rupert Sheldrake's work with morphogenic fields and and kind of talking about uh, that we're all really kind of connected through this field and, and yeah. how that relates. I mean, I, I love Rupert Sheldrake's work a lot. How many people here know his work? Um, <clears throat> one of his ideas that I think is so brilliant and kind of obvious once you think about it is he talks about how, like, um, you know, we have this idea that there are laws of nature that these laws are fixed and immutable. But actually, when you think about it, that's only an idea that developed in a historical context, you know, of the 16th, 17th century, you know, when, you know, the, the scientists at that time were Christians who had this idea that there was like a divine, you know, immutable, you know, heaven, you know, angelic, you know, set up with, you know, G, you know, God at the top, much like a Supreme Court judge, uh, you know, and, and a legal structure. So they imposed that idea on, onto these laws of nature and saw them as fixed and, and immutable, uh, like they were divinely, you know, inscribed. And uh, Sheldrake points out that um, <clears throat> it's more likely that the laws of nature are more like patterns or habits that form over time. Uh, you know, so for instance, you know, something like a crystal molecule forms and, and, and it reveals that potential, you know, in that type of circumstance for such a thing to happen. So, so Sheldrake then argues that that creates like a, uh, what he talked about as a, as a formal, like a morphogenic field that, that makes it more likely that that, that, that will happen again uh, until finally that pattern becomes more and more coherent and what was originally just uh, serendipity then becomes like something like a, a principle or a law. You know. 
So, and, and he believes that this could extend to you know, all sorts of things that you know, through our uh, beliefs and our consciousness, we're also creating new morphogenic fields of possibility. And just in, this, you know, in the same way that these uh, you know, things might have been possible in these different structures of consciousness that are not possible in other structures. I mean, to give you an example, the, the, the tradition of ayahuasca that I work with, the sequoia from Ecuador, um, you know, they claim that uh, you know, when, they w- when they would do their ceremonies together, I mean, there are these accountings of all these magical uh, things that happen. Uh, and among them, for instance, they, they say that uh, sometimes they would need a new healing plant, a new med- medicinal plant for some condition in the tribe. And they would pray and they would sing and they would drink ayahuasca all night. At the end of the night, the shaman would look down in his hand and he would have like a seed in his hand. And that would be the new, the new plant that, that, that had healing properties. You know, I, I personally believe that such a thing is possible. It's not possible in the mental rational structure of consciousness, but when you're in the magical structure, it was possible. You know, it might become some, you know, things like that and more things like that, an infinite number of more things like that may become possible to us when we fully shift into this next level of consciousness. You know, um, so yeah, and I think Sheldrake is providing a, a crucial conceptual uh, tools or building blocks. For, for seeing how this this potentiality can be realized, if that makes sense. <laughs> Any other uh, questions? Yeah, back there. Oh, okay. uh, continuing to expand on what you're talking about um, in like developing psychic abilities or tapping into like a superorganism. Uh, how much of that do you think is going to be technological uh, versus kind of shamanic technologies and whether that's possible in our current mind state this mental rational um, or do we need to move past that to I don't know, to accomplish that type of thing? Well I think it's an integration I mean that for me is very much what uh, 2012 uh, represents the you know kind of um, this next dispensation or level of, of consciousness that humanity can realize uh, is very much based on the full integration of the Western scientific, technical, and rational mindset with the uh, you know shamanic, uh, Eastern metaphysic um, kind of esoteric uh, worldview. You know th- 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 those things are going to come together, and um, they are coming together now. You know we, we we see it in many levels. You know for instance, you know the Dalai Lama's work with MIT brain science. You know scientists on you know, looking at what happens in deep meditation states, um, you know, in terms of like what types of, you know, waves are produced and so on. You know, I, I think that we're ultimately going to learn a lot about, you know, subtle aspects of, of electromagnetism and consciousness. And uh, we may develop beneficial tools and technologies to uh, enhance our capacities to, to learn and develop even at very fast rates. Uh, there's a really fun new book called The Psychedelic Future of the Mind by Tom Roberts. And he notes, for instance, like there are uh, demonstrated kind of uh, incidents of uh, people getting struck by lightning and suddenly developing or having new skills they never had before, like the ability to like play the piano you know, or, read, or read music or whatever. And uh, so this suggests that there are you know, forms of learning that become available through some type of electrical stimulation of the brain in some sense. You know, what if that's something we can learn, actually learn how to do, you know, and, and, that, and that just becomes like, allows for like rapid, you know, learning or re-imprinting. You know, the, the really, you know, the, the, the question is, 
you know, a, a lot of the, um, you know, kind of the, edgy, the edgier technologies in terms of understanding the brain-mind system can either be used as tools of domination and control or tools of, uh, you know, uh, liberation and realization, you know. And, uh, you know, that's why this time is so fascinating, I think, because we're really riding that knife edge on which way it's going to go, you know. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I realize that we've gone a bit long here today, but there's one more short story about Daniel that I'd like to tell you. You see, most people only get to experience Daniel as a public speaker or in a crowd that has gathered around him after one of his talks. And, by the way, uh, Daniel is one of the most accommodating speakers that I know. He uh, seems always ready to spend time with anyone who asks to talk with him. But since Daniel is a very serious scholar at his core, it may be difficult to see his lighter side in these uh, more intense discussions. However, the Daniel that I know is also a really fun guy once he gets a chance to lighten up, which means that uh, once all of the heavy-duty questioners have let him alone for a while, he can have a lot of fun with you. My favorite moment with Daniel uh, came around 4 or 5 one morning after an oracle gathering in Seattle. Earlier in the event, uh, somewhere around 10 o'clock the night before, Daniel and I gave back-to-back presentations to a packed room of people who were taking a break from the all-night dancing that was actually the main feature of the gathering. My talk was titled, The Other Side of 2012, and Daniel gave a talk titled, Aliens, Elementals, and the Demonic Realm. And uh, those are still available as podcast number 56 and 57 here in the salon. Anyway, we gave our talks, and then we spent several hours in deep discussions with some of the people there. But finally, we'd all had enough talk and went upstairs and danced until, well, close to dawn. I'd kind of lost track of Daniel during much of that time, but as we were getting ready to leave, he came walking into the little room where we were sitting, and uh, he had absolutely the biggest smile on his face that I've ever seen. Uh, And as we talked then, it was quite obvious that we were both still in uh, one of the best places we'd been in for a while. And uh, I got to see a very relaxed and fun-to-be-around person. So for me, uh, that is Daniel at his best. So the next time you see him, uh, hey, lighten up a bit and have some fun talking about some non-serious things. You know, uh, life's too short to be serious all the time, don't you think? And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.